Uh, good day. My name is Hugh. If you haven't met me, it's Hugh. If you have met me as well, same thing. Um, Bible reading is Philippians three one to eleven. I hope that's right. Um, give you some time to find that. So Philippians three one to eleven. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it, it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put, on, put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth um, of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for those uh, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Well, great to be up here uh, bringing uh, the word today. Uh, another reminder, we do have a question time every week after the sermon. So if, you're, if something comes up through the sermon and you want to just get it down before you forget, text away. A good little reminder for me to put my phone on silent. That'd be awkward, wouldn't it? Uh, if one of you decided to call me mid-sermon, uh, that'd be hilarious. Um, so there we go. And uh, text away, but you'll be able to ask in person as well. Same goes for you if you're watching along on YouTube. Uh, you can text in those questions uh, and we'll... Uh, we'll jump onto those. Now, a couple of years ago, mid-2022, you might remember we had about three solid months of rain. Uh, do, you remember, do you remember that? It was so soggy. Uh, we live, Lucy and I and our girls live in Dora Creek, so we can see the water, but we're not waterfront. But we were mid-2022. So here's a lovely, I think I'll use that as advertising if we ever go to sell our house. We were absolute waterfront. Uh, that's that, that was taken from the middle of the road, had um, water running past my, over my gumboots and looking across and, and thinking, wow, is this going to come any higher? That's why I was out there looking, going, what, what's going to happen next? Uh, now, luckily, that was the peak. It didn't get much higher than that for us. Uh, but at moments like that, when you look at your home and you think, oh, a flood's coming, uh, it makes me think think about uh, home insurance, uh, and it makes me think about safeguarding my home. And they are two distinct things, aren't they? Uh, insurance uh, is basically, in my view, a consolation prize. Insuring a home doesn't stop it getting flooded, doesn't stop it burning down. It's basically someone saying, I'm so sorry your house flooded, here's some money. Uh, that's all it is. It doesn't stop the bad thing happening, it's just a consolation. I'm really sorry that thing happened, uh, here's some money to make it better. That's kind of how insurance works. Uh, but a safeguard operates differently, doesn't it? Uh, this was my little safeguard there on the, on the left. I had some uh, plastic coffee bags and bricks, elastic, all sorts of wonderful things trying to keep the water out of the door. I thought, 
if it comes up another 15 centimetres, I've got to do something to keep the, the water out of the house. Now, if you've if you got the money, you build your house on stilts. I actually was researching photos for this. There's like houses on hydraulic jacks that come, that raise when the floods come. I thought, oh, I, do you reckon I could do one of those myself? Don't tell Lucy. Uh, that would uh, probably not end well or start well for that matter. Uh, but, but, but it raised that question of insurance for safeguard. If, if you're insuring your home, you look at all the risks, uh, you pay the money and the bank or the insurance company says, okay, look, your house burned down, here's, here's some money. You, you're safeguarding, you put sprinklers on your roof to stop it burning down. Uh, a safeguard, like a, a safe, that's why we call it a safe. Uh, insurance pays for the things that it recompenses you for the things that were destroyed. But if there's anything you can't bear to lose, Maybe it's some jewellery that's been in the family for generations or some war medals or some certificates, you're really, you know, birth certificates and the like. You, you, you don't need insurance for those. I want to safeguard those. Uh, uh, by the way, Aldi this week, I was in getting bread and milk. Guess what they've got in Aldi this week? Safes. Flood-proof, fire-proof safes. Uh, but th that's a safeguard, isn't it? Insurance is, oh, I'm sorry you lost it, here's some money. Safeguard, on the other hand, this is going to stop it being destroyed. This will stop uh, anything bad happening to it. But what about when it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, our relationship with God? See, for faith, I don't want insurance. I, I think insurance is just not enough because insurance is just a consolation prize. I don't want a consolation prize if my faith doesn't deliver. If Jesus doesn't deliver on all his promises, uh, treating our faith with a kind of insurance mindset would be saying, look, I'm pretty sure following Jesus is a good thing to do, but just in case it's not, I'm still going to try and suck the most out of life. That, that's insurance. Saying, I'm pretty sure I'll, it's good to follow Jesus, but as insurance, I'll still try and just suck the most out of life. Because then even if Jesus doesn't deliver, at least I had a good life. At least I got to experience all those things. I'll just live for God and all that other stuff. But the problem with that, when we try and live like that, is that we, we live with a foot in both camps. We're never sure. We're never fully confident. We're never all in. And I don't reckon that's any kind of life, kind of half-heartedly living for something. Far better, and actually possible, says Paul, in today's passage in the Philippians, he says he's a safeguard for your faith. Uh, Paul says it's possible to have some loss prevention, some security, that's what he, what he promises. That's what he offers in verse 1. Did you pick it up as Hugh was reading there? He says, further, my brothers and sisters, uh, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. And the rest of the passage down to verse 11 just fleshes out what he means by that. Because we safeguard what's precious to us. Uh, some of us here uh, were parents uh, and maybe can remember the, the moment, especially for your first child, uh, you're born. I can remember when Poppy was this tiny little thing, she was just got born and they, you're in the maternity suite and check you out and, and you're walking out of the hospital going, I'm not, I can't be responsible for this thing. <laughs> like, that's a child you just gave me. Yeah, are we responsible? But it's this precious little thing that we didn't have before and now we do. And when Lucy and I got married and had, had Poppy quite, quite early, we didn't have a whole lot of money, but I tell you what we were not going to scrimp on was the car seat. No way was Lucy going to go with a not the best we could possibly afford car seat because this precious little bundle of life, I don't want insurance 
for something happening to this little child. I want to safeguard her. And so you do what you can to stop the bad thing happening. And I think Paul's encouragement to the Philippians and to us today is to treat our faith like that. Not just, ah, oh, well, if it goes, at least I'll get a payout. At least I had a good, ah, oh, well, it doesn't really matter if Jesus doesn't deliver. At least I had a good life. That's insurance. Paul says, don't live like that. Safeguard your faith. Treat it preciously. And that, he says, he drives us to rejoice in the Lord. That's, that's the core. And so the steps that we work through is he says, this is how you safeguard your faith. He says, you, you've got to do something surprising, which is actually count everything as loss, all as loss, then count Christ as all, and then we've got to know Christ now. So that's, that's where we're heading today. That's the trajectory. And the first thing Paul says you've got to do to safeguard your faith, count all as loss. Now, because some people in our lives will say you've got to lock in your salvation, some people say, if you, you become a Christian, that's great. Great that you trust Jesus. You know, pat yourself on the back. Good job. But you've got to do something extra. You've got to back it up. You've got to do something to ensure it. And often these claims are around the Old Testament law. And that still happens today. And it was happening in Philippi. And we know it was happening in Philippi because Paul talks about it. Uh, they're Philippians. They've got this church. They were trusting in Jesus. And these legalists, these people were coming in and saying, fantastic, really glad you trust Jesus, good job, but you're not really one of God's people. Now, I mean, you're kind of in, but if you really want to be in God's people, if you want to be one of the inner circle, like truly one of God's people, you've got to do this extra thing. You've got to do these extra acts. Have a look at how he talks about them, and he's pretty passionate. You pick it up. He says, watch out for those dogs. He doesn't hold back, does he? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So you see, these people, they were from a Jewish background. They're saying, yep, good on you for following Jesus. But that's not enough. Trusting Jesus, faith isn't enough. Grace, God's forgiveness isn't enough. If you really want to be God's people, their particular issue is around circumcision and some of the other laws. But it could be anything. It could be what day of the week you worship on, what foods you eat, uh, some particular religious practices. And they say, hey, great, you love Jesus, but you've got to do this extra stuff if you really want to be one of God's people. And Paul says, guys, don't listen to them. They're dogs, he says, which is a particular slur that the Jews used to talk about unbelievers in the Old Testament, uh, anyone who wasn't Jewish. And Paul says, no, they've got it all wrong. They're the one who are outside of God's kingdom because they are putting confidence in the flesh. That is when he says confidence in the flesh, he says they're trusting their own effort, what they can do in and of themselves. That's what they're trusting for salvation. And Paul says, if anyone's got a reason to have confidence in the flesh, he says, check out my resume. Have a look there, verse 4. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they've got reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, he's saying, you know, some people, some Jews, they got converted when they were grown-ups. And they had to get circumcised much later in life. I was born into a Jewish family. Yeah, I got circumcised on exactly the right day. And not only was I born into a Jewish family of the people of Israel, he says, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, uh, if you're reading through the Old Testament, there's uh, the history of how the tribes of Israel started, 12 brothers, and the favorite son, after Joseph got, uh, well, kind of abducted 
sold into slavery was Benjamin, the favourite son. And Benjamin, going down through the history, was the only tribe who stuck with Judah. They were the faithful tribe. So it's like saying, if you're an Israelite, thumbs up. If you're a Benjaminite, double thumbs up. That's what Paul's saying. I'm on the cream of the crop when it comes to my ancestry, the people of Israel, Hebrew of Hebrews. So that's what he says, where I've come from, top tier. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest sect. They weren't the legalists. They had the most rules. Uh, They'd be the people who'd be frowning at everyone else for how liberal they were, how they didn't take God's word seriously. He says, I was one of those guys who who took it so seriously. He says, as for zeal, zeal is another word for passion. I persecuted the church. We read it about in Acts, don't we? Paul uh, went around from town to town to town, hunting down Christians, trying to arrest them, trying to get them killed in, in some, uh, some cases. He says, I, I was as passionate as they come for God and his people. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, Paul's not claiming to have never sinned there. He's saying, I did the right thing when I did sin. I read the Old Testament law, and if I sinned, and and that meant I had to sacrifice two pigeons and half a kilo of flour, I did. I I did all the right things. I dotted the I's, I crossed the T's, and I puffed up my chest and said, I have done it. I've achieved righteousness. I'm right with God. Not because God did anything, but because I ticked all these boxes. Look at everything I did. That, That was Paul. Do you see how he goes on in that statement? Look at all I've done. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, what's happened in Paul's mind and his life, his heart, has been an accounting shift. So forgive me, Jeff, and the other accountants here if this isn't an appropriate balance sheet, but this is how it works in my head. Um, If you look at your assets, you look at what you've got going for you financially, you've got the two columns, you've got your your gains, that's what I call it, the assets or your equity, uh, and you've got your losses, your liability. And if we just think about it when it comes to a home, uh, some of us have been able to buy a home, or I should say borrow money from the bank that we promised to pay back over the next decades and decades and decades. And generally what happens, what you hope will happen is you buy a home, you start paying it off and you start gaining equity. You find all of a sudden that your home is worth more than what you owe to the bank. Uh, you say, you still owe the bank 300000 but the, the home's worth 500000 I've now got $200,000 in that gain column, that asset column, that equity column. But what happens if there's a cr- housing market crash? Anyone here, hands up, show of hands, been through a housing market crash? Uh, a couple there, yeah, yeah, feeling the beers, like, oh, I remember that. Uh, and, and depending what stage you are at your mortgage, what happens to a lot of people in a housing market crash is that equity shifts columns, goes from being a gain to a loss. The housing market can fall so far that what we owe is now more than the house is worth. Still owe 300000 but the house is only worth 200000 now. And that's kind of what's happened for Paul in his life. See, for the Jew, before Jesus, a faithful Jew trusting God, God gave them so many rules and laws and instructions to follow. And a Jew whose, whose heart was right with God, who loved God, who knew they couldn't do anything themselves to earn their righteousness, they'd look at all these rules and they'd say, there is no way that killing a goat pays for my sin. But God says he'll forgive me if I do. They'll, they'll look at that and say, there's no way that offering some flour and a drink offering can deal with my, my unrighteousness. That, that doesn't happen. But God says it will. So I'll do it. 
If you ask that Jew, hey, why should you be in God's family? They would say, oh, because God forgave me. Because God has had mercy on me. Because I have faith. I share the faith of my ancestor, Abraham. And for that Jew who's doing all the right things, they're following God's instructions, they're trying to honour God out of thanks and gratefulness as an expression of their faith. All those things go in the gain column for that Jew. But then there's another Jew standing alongside and they do the same things. They follow the rules, they make sacrifices, they do the pilgrimages, they honour the special days and they puff up their chest and say, I don't need God to forgive me. I've earned my righteousness. Look at all that money I gave. Look at all the tithing I did. Look at all the festivals I honoured. I don't need forgiveness. I have righteousness according to the law. I earned it. And for that Jew, God looks at them and says, all those things you did, they're not proof of your faith, asset, gain. They're proof of your self-reliance. All those things you did with that hard heart, they're just proof that you didn't love me at all. You don't trust me. You don't have faith. They're just evidence that you don't trust me, that you're trying to earn it yourself. And the same thing can happen after Jesus for the Christian. So you see, Jesus gives us a whole lot of instructions to follow. Commands to love one another. Commands to go to church. Don't give up meeting with one another. Commands to be generous and support the work of the gospel. Commands to serve one another. They're all instructions and we can do those things. And if, if we do those things out of faith... If we look at those things and say, there's no way that me putting 50 bucks in the plate is going to deal with my sin. How could that deal with my sin? That's not doing anything. Me serving, me going to church, that doesn't earn my way into heaven. It's just a small way I can honour my great God. I can obey him. I can thank him. Why should I go to heaven? Well, because Jesus died for me. It's got nothing to do with all this stuff. Well, all those things, they end up in the gain column. They're They're bonuses, they're benefits, they're assets. God says, that's good. It's proof that you love me, that you have faith. It's evidence that you really do trust me and follow me. But another Christian can be doing all those same things and going, oh, I'm I'm pretty good. I don't feel like I owe God that much anymore. Yeah, I used to owe God a bit, but I'm starting to square it up. Look how often I've been to church. Look how much I've given. Look how I've served. Look how I've loved one another. And Paul says, if, if, if we're doing that, if we're putting confidence in that, it's not an asset anymore. It's not a gain. It moves across to loss. It's actually evidence, not of your faith, but of my self-reliance. Proof that I don't really trust God. Instead, I'm just trusting myself. That, that's what's going on here. That's what Paul's talking about. It doesn't become neutral. It becomes a loss proof that we don't really have faith. So the challenge for any Christian reading this for Philippians is to look at what we do and think, well, why am I doing this? Am I giving? Am I serving? Am I coming to church? Am I loving others? Because in some way, I think it will earn me salvation. I can put confidence in that by the flesh. Oh, don't do that, Paul says. That'll push you across into the loss column. Or am I doing this thing out of gratefulness and joy and just wanting to honour my father because of all he's done for me. That's the challenge. He says, will you consider all that loss? Will you consider it as to be worth nothing when it comes to earning your faith? That's how to safeguard faith. Make sure nothing we do will threaten it. But for Paul, it doesn't even stop at his works. 
It actually extends to the things he loves in his life. Do you see that in verse 8? He says, what's more, more than even that, I consider everything a loss. Everything. Well, how does that help? To not just consider our works, but everything a loss. Well, ask ourselves this. What are the things we value most? It might be your health. Uh, it might be your family. It might be a relationship uh, of some kind, a friendship. Uh, it might be our career. It might be the fact that we don't have a career anymore and we get to enjoy retirement. What, what is it that we value that we love? Now, I picture that thing, hold it up, and, and ask ourselves, if I were to lose that, if God were to take that away from me, that health, that career, that income, that stability, that retirement, that relationship, that person. If God were to take that away from me, what would happen to my faith? Would I, would I give up on God? Would I walk away from Jesus? That's what Paul's trying to get at. He says, if, if we consider other things so valuable that if we were to lose them, they would shake us to our core and threaten our faith, that, that's a risky faith. That, that's building a house in a flood zone. He says, if you take that thing and you consider it a loss already, you've still got it, but I'm going to consider it a loss. Easy enough to do if it's something that doesn't matter that much. But what about the things that are really precious to us, the people, the relationships? How, how do you consider them a loss? Everything a loss. How do I do that? How do we safeguard faith? Well, the only way Paul says we can actually do that is if something more precious comes along. That's, that's the next thing he goes. He says, you've got to consider all those things a loss by counting Christ as all. Have a look how Paul links these two ideas together through verses 7 to 8. Um, so we'll reread from verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, that's the works, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God on the basis of faith. Now, Jesus uh, describes this process in, in a parable, a story he tells. Uh, two stories, actually, two parables in Matthew 13. Some of the shortest ones are only a verse each. The first is a parable of a man going through the markets uh, and he sees a pearl uh, and he, he sees it for what it is. It's the pearl of great worth. He can't afford it. He's, his cards are maxed out. He doesn't have the money. So he goes and sells everything he has and then comes back and buys the pearl. Uh, next verse, another story. Another man, he's walking through a field and he trips over something, digs it up, and there's a treasure in the field. So uh, surprisingly, he doesn't go tell the owner of the field that, hey, did you know you've got treasure? He buries it again. Then he goes down to the real estate and says, hey, is that field for sale? If it's not for sale, make it for sale. I want to buy it. And then it says, and with joy, he sold everything he had and bought the field. Now, that man, everything he had, do you think he loved that stuff? I reckon he did. He probably had a you know, state-of-the-art donkey cart, you know, as the, the battery model with the extended range. Uh, he, he had the works. He had a house that he liked living in. All these things. He didn't own them because he hated them. He owned them because he liked them. But he sold them with joy. How can you sell something? He considered them loss. 
for the surpassing worth of this treasure that he discovered. It was just worth so much more to him. A new love, a new treasure that was worth so much more than everything he has. That's this picture that Jesus gives us of this. Uh, many, and then that's what Paul's talking about here. What's the treasure? Well, he, he says as he works through, he, he builds on it. He says the treasure is having Christ, uh, knowing him. It's gaining Christ. And then explicitly down there in verse 9, he says the treasure is having a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, that word righteousness, I remember what it means uh, by thinking of rightnessness. Um, so, if I'm in the wrong with God, uh, I wouldn't have righteousness, I'd have wrongnessness, because uh, I'm in the wrong with God, I've got a relational breakdown. But if I'm in the right with God, if God's cleared those debts, we have a wholesome relationship, no issues between us anymore. If God sees me as in the right, that's righteousness. Uh, and Paul says... You can have this righteousness or self-perceived righteousness. You can think, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with God. Look at all these things that I've done. He says, that's all righteousness comes from the law and it, it won't deliver. You can actually never do enough. But there's another righteousness that comes from God through faith. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's given. And if it's given freely as a gift in reaction to faith, it's not taken away if I fail to keep up my list of things to do. And that, Paul says, that's the treasure in the field. That's the pearl of great price, being righteous before God. See, many in our lives will say something like, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket uh, when it comes to faith. Uh, often it'll be family, close friends, people who really care about us. Uh, and they might say to us about church, they'll say, look, great that you love Jesus, but don't get too serious about it. There's more to life than church. Don't overcommit. Keep yourself free for all this other stuff. Don't go all in with that Jesus group, with church. That's what it'll sound like when people say, hey, don't, don't get too excited about this. Don't go and sell everything for this treasure. Yeah, calm down, calm down. It's just faith. Now, the Bible says... Everything in this world, God's given us to use and enjoy. He gave us eyes that could see color and appreciate beauty, tongues that could taste things, ears that could hear, bodies that can experience this world. This world is to be enjoyed and give great thanks and honor to God because of. But he says, the Bible says, don't live for it. They're all good things, relationships, experiences, health, career. They're, they're good things. God's designed us to enjoy these things, but don't live for them. Enjoy them, but don't live for them. Uh, maybe a diagnostic question to ask ourselves this is what I've been wrestling with this week. Is when I look at this thing I'm enjoying, that I'm in love, that I'm loving, that God has provided for my enjoyment, ask myself, am I enjoying this in such a way that it says to anyone who's watching, whether it's the devil, heavenly powers, or other people, Am I enjoying this in such a way that anyone watching can see that this means nothing to me compared to Christ? They'll see me enjoying it, but am I enjoying it in such a way that if they're watching, they would say, Liam would give that up in a heartbeat compared to knowing Christ. That's loss for Liam compared to knowing Christ. Yeah, he's enjoying it, 
for now, but it's nothing compared to Christ. The, the word that Paul uses is a, a little bit dirtier than garbage. The word there is, is refuse or excrement. Now, I won't go any further than that, but he doesn't pull his punches, does he? That's what this is compared to knowing Christ. I will sell it, not like, oh, I'll sell it. I'll sell it with joy if it means knowing Christ. Now, if it's going to mean that much to us, if we're going to count Christ all, it needs to be more than just a righteousness ticket, than just a oh, get into heaven for free card. But what's on offer is more than that. There's an intimate relationship. Did you pick that up in these verses? It's not just, you know, entry to heaven that's on offer. But what's on offer is knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in him. It's this unity. And what Paul shows us is it's not just a future hope, not just something we'll get one day, but it can be a present experience. So, so how do we safeguard our faith? How do we future-proof it and make sure uh, we don't lose it in some way? Well, Paul says, you've you got to look at everything in this life, what you do, your works, even the things you love, count it as loss. To do that, you have to find a greater treasure. Count Christ as all. And he says, you can't wait to know Christ in the future. You've got to experience knowing Christ now. Did you pick that up in verse 10? Paul, Paul says this with passion, doesn't he? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, is it a good thing to look forward to the resurrection? Absolutely. Look forward to a world there's, there's no more sin, no more death where I'm not selfish anymore, where I have pure motives, as does everybody else, where we're perfected, where there's no grieving, no loss. Oh, to be with Jesus face to face and know him fully, that's a wonderful thing to be looking forward to, the, the new creation. Look forward to it. But it's not all in the future. That's what Paul says. There's, you've got to know Christ now. Oh, look there in verse 10. I want to know him now. I want to be found in him now. Now, now, when do we experience this resurrection power of Jesus? Now, now, some people would say we experience Jesus' resurrection power in the victories in life. When you're healthy, when you're wealthy, when you're happy. Maybe in healings or miracles, that they're the moments where you most know Jesus' power. Now, can we know Jesus in those times acutely and, and intimately? Absolutely. The Bible talks about that. It's, it's a good thing. But that is not the emphasis of the Bible. The emphasis of the Bible is not that you will know Christ in victory and in ease. The emphasis of the Bible is that you will know Christ most closely in suffering. Did you pick that up in verse 10? I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. The way they're put together in the original language it's not two separate things. I want to know the resurrection power and participation in his sufferings. They go together. I want to know this resurrection power and participation in his sufferings. So there's two ways that we can experience this resurrection power, intimacy with Jesus in suffering. And the first main way is suffering for the gospel. Now, when we see Jesus suffering uh, as he went through life in great humility, as he went to the cross, uh, enduring the whipping, the mocking, the torture, as he hung on the cross, not just enduring the physical pain, 
but the emotional, spiritual pain of having the wrath of God for all people poured out on him in its fullness. The, the, the greatest suffering known to man ever. Why did he do that? Just as an example, like, oh, hey, this is how much I love you. Look, I'll do this really hard thing. Or it's an example of how to, how to be nice. No, he, he did it to achieve something, to save. Jesus suffered to save people from their sin, to bring people into relationship with his father. That's why he went through that, to bring us into relationship with himself and his father. His suffering was purposeful. And we can join him in his suffering, not by dangling on a cross, uh, not by physical pain and in some way taking the punishment for sins. There's no way we can do that. But we can suffer like Christ by suffering, by sacrificing so that other people can come into his family. See, when we serve in our spare time, that's good, but it's not a sacrifice. When we give out of the money that is surplus, that doesn't change our lifestyle, that's good, but it's not sacrifice. When we invest in people, but it's kind of encouraging for us, that's good, but it's not sacrifice. But when we give our time in a way that kind of hurts, that means I have to stop doing other things to give time to this gospel thing. When we give our money in a way that hurts, it says, I have to not do something else financially so that I can give to this gospel thing. When we invest in someone for their good, for their gospel good, and it's hard and you just feel empty at the end of it, sacrifice. That's sacrifice. That's suffering like Christ. And at those moments of sacrifice and suffering, we can find an intimacy with Christ, a unity, a union with him as we share his mind, share his purpose, share his desires. Because that's what he did, isn't it? Look, not to the interest of himself, but to the interest of others. Took great personal cost so that others might be lifted up either into the kingdom or grown to maturity. It's a wonderful way that we can find unity with Christ in suffering. But there's another way, a second way of finding unity with Christ in suffering, and it's in general suffering, and it's finding comfort in suffering. It's when more general suffering in life comes along and we endure it in such a way that honours God. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he talks quite a lot about suffering, uh, and he talks a lot, as he's talking about suffering, about the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing this experiential intimacy. Uh, in Romans 5, he's talking about suffering. He says this, uh, sorry, it's meant to be Romans 5, but uh, that is the right verse, verse 3. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Uh, very well-known verse, probably sent a lot, of, a lot of calendars and notepads. But in my experience, that's not automatic. Does suffering automatically lead to hope? No. Suffering often sucks and leads to pain. Well, why would suffering go through that process of suffering, perseverance, character, hope? Well, you've got to keep reading. Uh, read the next verse, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's Paul talking about there? He's talking about suffering. Th those moments of suffering. How does suffering turn into hope? Not because of something in me, not because I'm such a good person that somehow I can turn suffering into hope and character. 
Because of those moments of suffering, if we turn to God, we can experience the pouring out of his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and experience his comfort at that moment acutely. In Romans 8, a few chapters later, Paul extends his teaching on the Spirit in us. Uh, He talks about the Spirit making us heirs in Christ, co-heirs with Christ, God's children. Uh, He says the experience of being in Christ is the experience of being God's children. He goes on to talk about suffering uh, in chapter 8 in verses uh, 22 to 25. Describes suffering in this world and in us kind of like childbirth. And now I haven't been through childbirth, but I've been there for four of them. So I'm not going to pretend I've got any idea of the kind of suffering, but I know the kind of groaning that happens. That's, that's, that's the language that Paul says. That's the nature of life in this world. It's, it's a groaning. It's an agony. It's a, when is this going to end? Get this thing out of me. I don't know if that's a familiar phrase, uh, but it's this desperate groaning and suffering. And have a look at how he finishes in verse 26 about this suffering. He says, in the same way, when you're experiencing that suffering, that deep groaning and hopelessness, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. See, when things are going well, when they're smooth, And when we've got the job, when we've got the income coming in more than the outgoings, when our health's okay, we can just kind of drift into this sea of self-reliance. We'll say thank you to God occasionally. Oh, thanks for the great day. Thanks for this food. But it doesn't drive us to him in the same way that job loss does, that pain, that injury, that aging, that relational breakdown does, that grief does. See, it's at these moments, if we turn to Jesus, where we can experience unity with Christ. We can truly rely on him and have his resurrection power supply our need. Uh, This morning I preached this at Marmong and I had a uh, guy come up to me, Bob, his wife's Jenny, he said I could share this. Uh, Their daughter uh, got leukemia when she was 11. And there was months and months and months of treatment for them. Uh, Jenny lived at the hospital. Bob had to keep it up. Now, their daughter, she she ended up dying. But as I was preaching this chunk, uh, Bob came up to me this morning. He said, oh, we we looked at each other and we just went, yeah. That that happened for us. We, We grew under that pressure to experience God's love. We've, we've never known anything quite like it. This intense, deep suffering and sorrow and grief. But in the midst of that, in turning to God for comfort, they, they knew him more deeply. They found unity with him. And they were able to go on trusting him, trusting that their daughter who loved Jesus is with him in his arms and grew through that suffering. Now, wouldn't it be a tragedy to have suffering come, and it will come, maybe it's coming right now for you, to have suffering come and not do its work just to drive us into more more suffering rather than into joy by driving us to God. Um, Suffering for the gospel is something we can pursue, we can chase. General suffering, we don't have to pursue it, it will come. But we can learn to welcome it. 
there was a, a British preacher uh, by the name of Charles Spurgeon who kind of hung on to this truth. And he had an image uh, in his mind of being at the ocean uh, where the waves are too big. Uh, maybe you've experienced that and you've been dumped on a sandbar. Uh, if you're unlucky, you might have been dumped on a rock. Uh, and that's not a good experience. Uh, but what he did is he picked up this image and he, and he said this. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Waves that dump you and smash you are not good unless they dump and smash you into the comfort of God's arms, into intimacy with Christ, into knowing him more deeply. So I want to ask, I guess along with Paul this morning, this afternoon, what's your faith worth to you? Are you going to insure it? <laughs> yeah, keep living for this world so that if it lets you down, well, at least I had a good life. That's not enough for me. Or are you going to treat it as precious, something you can't bear to lose? And it's actually the same pattern to trust Jesus for the first time as it is for any Christian to safeguard their faith, count all as lost, let go of the things we value most. Count Christ as all, see, knowing him, being found in him, being found righteous in him as most valuable, the pearl beyond price. And to know Christ now, not only look forward to the resurrection, look forward to that, but delight in knowing him now, particularly in suffering when the sweet joy of Christ, of unity with him, will be undiluted by any other joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you don't leave us floundering, but you recognize this world we live in. That there will be things that come along that may threaten our faith, that may rock us, that may, we may look at and wonder, will I survive? Can I trust you through this? We thank you for your Apostle Paul who wrote these words for our encouragement to challenge us and to spur us on that we might safeguard our faith and find true joy in you, rejoice in you in all things. Lord, we, each of us uh, delight in different things in this life and we pray that in those things we may delight in them, we may enjoy them, but please help us to enjoy them in such a way that it is obvious that we count them as nothing compared to Christ. Do this work in our heart and our lives, we pray. And please help us to encourage one another and stand with one another and help one another so that in any season of life, particularly suffering, we can know you, know you now all the more closely. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.